John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory. Hello, welcome to the American Writers uh, Podcast. Uh, I am currently working my way through uh, the Library of America's four volume collection on the American Civil War. It's a huge anthology um, that kind of goes through the major events of the war from different points of view. I'm having a lot of fun reading it um, and kind of getting some new perspectives on, on things and learning about some new sources that I wasn't that uh, aware of. I'm not real. I'm not like a Civil War buff. I, I read quite a lot of Civil War history when I was younger, but uh, you know, I've, and I've kind of kept up with some of the scholarship on it. I was always more interested, I guess, in Reconstruction as I got as I got older, and um, you know, and of course, the whole Emancipation movement uh, fascinated me. But I, I wasn't like I don't have a huge library of Civil War literature, um, so. Uh, so that just means I'm kind of learning a lot from this anthology. I don't know if uh, someone who was up to speed on every aspect of Civil War history might not uh, have the same experience. I, I do think this hits like the big battles and the big kind of events um, in order. Um, so you're not missing any of the major moments. So I think that's that's a nice thing. It's not going too much down different rabbit holes. Um, and it does have that nice broad diversity. So once again, I think this is a pretty good anthology. I'm kind of working through it kind of slowly, um, just because, as, as I've been saying, you know, work is still kind of stressing me out. I've been watching quite a bit of TV. I've been reading a bunch of Stephen King. I've also um, been trying to get back into reading some scholarship. Uh, so, um, yeah. I also got the Edge of the Earth expansion for... Arkham Horror, the card game. So I've been kind of distracted by different things, but um, that's 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 that. I I'm in, I'm in last week of, of work for the semester, so I'm really happy about about getting a little bit of a break, and hopefully I can catch up on this and at least get through. I'm hoping by the end of uh, the spring festival holiday, which is three weeks, I can maybe get through year three of the Civil War. If I if I go at it pretty hard, we'll see. Um, but anyways. Uh, so the documents I want to look at today cover really just June <laughs> and a bit of July, June and July of 1861. So these are all documents around the first battle of Bull Run, more or less the first major battle. And we're going to see a series of battles over the next couple episodes, which are all, all pretty much Union defeats. The, the first major battles of the, of the war were, were Union defeats. Um, in fact, as I was kind of reading along, I went to just search the Wikipedia for Civil War battles and there's actually a listing of them where they're graded based on how significant they are. So it's like A, B, C, or D based on how significant they are. And I guess there's like 8,000 locations in the United States that are kind of identified as Civil War battle f sites. Um, of course, many were just skirmishes or or things like that. And, you know, most of those weren't major battles, but then it kind of lists the significance based on strategic outcome and tactical outcome and things like that, or casualty count and all that. Um, and you can see like, you know, the, all these, uh, 
Union defeats early on, major battles, right? And those are the ones we're going to cover over the next couple of weeks. And by the end of 1861, we actually see in these documents just how kind of frustrated Lincoln was by this and, and his first kind of major shakeup of the, of the higher officer corps and, and, and all that. So that's coming coming up. Um, but you know what really surprised me when I was looking at that list? Because it, it says it ranks them by A, B, C, D, and then it gives a Union or Confederate victory. It's, I would have thought when I scanned through it by 64, 65 would be like all Union victories, and it wasn't. There was actually um, Confederate victories even, even late in the war. But, you know, kind of I guess who wins the war matters in the end, right? Because I don't know, I know towards the end, like in the Overland campaign, there was like Union defeats, but they kept able to move forward. And so it's like strategic victories, even if there were tactical defeats. That certainly wasn't the case early in the war with these defeats, where they're both tactical and strategic um, blunders for the Union. And of course, the most famous of these is Bull Run, which is the, the focus today. Um, Anyways, let's go through the documents. I actually lost my notes about this. Well, they're here somewhere, I suppose. But anyways, we'll just jump into them. Um, the first we got is Charles C. Jones Jr. to Charles C. Jones Sr. and uh, Mary Jones, his mother. So this was the guy. He, this guy was the mayor of Savannah, uh, October 1860s. This is before secession. He was elected the mayor, but uh, obviously went along with it. Um, and this is kind of a carry-on of some of the things we we're talking about in the last episode where we see his response to the contraband issue um response to judge taney's dissent in the habeas corpus decision um but he's really kind of offended by the by the whole contraband question right so just to review this the contraband question issue was what to do with um slaves who you know, reach union lines or slaves that through some movements ended up in union lines, right? Are they freed? Um, are they put to, do you put them to work? Because, you know, if these people are in rebellion against you and you put them to work, it's like that it's their property, right? It's still legally their property. They're not freed yet, but you basically treat them like freed men at that point, freed men and women. And then what do you do in like border states where you have people who are ostensibly still loyal, but it's not clear. Maybe they're maybe they're pro-Confederate. It it's, gets fuzzier in the border states. But this is a legal question. We'll see this really come to a head, I think, in the next couple episodes with the Fremont decision. This was something I talked about in the Lincoln series way back uh, when, when Fremont basically said the slaves are freed in the places where I'm at. <clears throat> and Lincoln nearly i think almost fired him for that or maybe did basically he said you can't do that right and there was actually a couple other decisions that fremont made that lincoln said you can't do it was all about kentucky right kentucky was kind of declaring neutrality i guess kentucky had like like a pro-confederate governor but a pro-union legislature so they just sort of sat it sat it out early on and it would take a while for basically it to be decided that they were it wasn't going to happen secession i mean but anyways he's he, my point is that charles c jones way down in savannah was pretty uh you know this this is all building up a narrative in the confederate mind of like union tyranny right even though the the south did just the same kind of stuff right suspending habeas corpus and of course they were maintaining slavery so they they weren't bastions of freedom as much as they wanted to present themselves that way but uh 
you know, it was part of the narrative, right, that Lincoln is this tyrant. Um, but you also see here the beginning of, I think, trouble, the troubles that are going to plague the Confederacy when you see Savannah already issuing fa uh, fasting days, which would, of course, be part of, of Confederate nation building in a way, but also a sign of just how, you know, they're or you know, the supply issue was was early on identified as a, as a problem they're going to have to face. Um, and he's down in Savannah, not really clear on what's happening. He thinks there's a battle coming forth, and of course there would be uh, in July. Um, so the next document we have is Henry Adams writing to his, his brother. We got a series of letters back and forth in this anthology between the two. Henry Adams is in London with his father, who is ambassador for the Republicans in, um, in London. And these are good letters because you really see both because uh, Charles Francis Adams Jr., his brother is is like in Washington and uh, I think sometimes Washington, sometimes in New England. Um, and then of course you got Henry Adams who's helping his dad as the diplomat. And and it's kind of a window into the State Department side of, of things. Uh, and you know a lot of frustration for Henry Adams, just about. Like the media, the, the the media in Britain, but but also about uh, the Secretary of State's um, aggression, I guess, towards towards um, and Stewart here. I'm talking about um, Secretary of State Stewart towards London. It was something that that Henry Adams and his father seemed to be really really worried about. Is that you know the, the Stewart's going to like push Britain to war with the United States over this neutrality issue and over other other things like the blockade and and representing the confederacy and of course britain never would so this is of course i think the big achievement of of henry adams father charles francis adams senior is kind of keeping england out of the war uh i don't know how much the chances are they would have joined in any case but there there are moments where you know there's the brink of war and that would have changed so much obviously um, he actually concludes this letter, Henry does, I'm in a panic, you see, about this. Um, he quote, I do not think I exaggerate the danger. I believe that our government means to have war with England. I believe that England knows that and is preparing for it, and I believe it will come within two months, if at all. If you have any property liable to be affected by change the investment, end quote. So the, the insider trading aside here, um, I think it's uh, it's just a... A sign of just how worried they were and I, I think that maybe makes it's another reason we should appreciate the Adams family um, is you know all the things John Adams does all the things John Quincy Adams does and then his his son um, Charles Francis Adams you know most people don't know about him but what a big role he must have played in in this moment of history in keeping Great Britain neutral uh, during this conflict because that would have changed so much so next we have John Ross to Benjamin McCullough. So Benjamin McCullough was a Confederate agent of sorts. We're going to see a couple of John Ross documents here in, in the future, um, especially as the Con Cherokee Nation. John Ross was the chief of the Cherokee, right? If you studied the Trail of Tears and that whole debate with Boudinot, maybe you came across that in you know some kind of history class you studied. And of course, John Ross what ended up the chief after Cherokee removal, and he was more, yeah, he was more on the side of accepting removal. Um, 
to to Oklahoma, and I think Boudinot was more resisting this, right? Or was it the other way around? Was Ross the resistor and Boudinot? Who remembers? Let me look this up. <clears throat> All right, Boudinot with other leading Cherokees, particularly those educated outside the tribe, believe that removal was inevitable. He and several allies signed the Treaty of New Achoka. Uh, so yeah, Boudinot was on their side. But Ross, despite, I guess, I guess he was on the opposed to it, and he ended up the chief. Anyways, uh, his significance in this story is that he uh, he moves towards siding with the Confederacy after early Confederate victories. But that's I'll see that coming up. This document is basically a, a statement of of sovereignty and non participation in the war, neutrality, if you will. What's next? Oh, James Russell Lowell. So this is like a piece of journalism from the Atlantic Mon Monthly. And this is, um, it's, it's, it's a good document. It's, it's fairly long. But what's good about this document is it does kind of speak to the, um, kind of some of the frustration uh, about among Northern Patriots. Something that's going to come up a lot in this second half of 1861. A frustration with Lincoln, I suppose. Um, now, it doesn't mean they're like, saying surrender and you know give the confederacy what they want you know they are nationalist media organs strictly you know strongly pro-union and really contemptuous of secession and all that but still a little frustration with the lack of leadership on their side of it and you get both here so it's kind of a, a, a kind of a disgust with both sides in a way but the f frustration with with lincoln is coming more just the Kind of the lack of of action, and I, and I think there's a there was this kind of mobilization and this feeling that this war is going to be quick and decisive, and the fact that it didn't happen right away, I think, was frustrating for some people. And then when you had defeats early on, I mean, that even made it worse. But there's even kind of this idea of like he this Lau even kind of accuses the Republicans of being a, of embracing a bit of appeasement here, being a little too soft on the Confederacy and all that. Um, Nevertheless, he's got some interesting points here, like how something that other people have said, like we saw Grant saying this, uh, is that the war is going to end slavery. This prediction that slavery is not going to be able to survive the war, we've seen several times. And we see it here, too. So this is a, a nice document. It, it's actually got a really interesting name. It's called the Pickens and Steelen Rebellion, which is a kind of a mocking way of talking about the, the Confederacy and their... There, he kind of calls them a sham state and sham constitution and things like that. Uh, and, and really kind of a mocks the Confederacy. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of frustration with, with Lincoln in this, in this document, which I think was not uncommon. Um, next, uh, we have a, a July 4th message, a proclamation to um, Congress. So he called them into session on July 4th. And I think they weren't scheduled to meet till the winter, but he called them in because of war issues. And and this is just a, it's kind of a report. It's an executive uh, branch report to the, to Congress. And therefore, not necessarily the most exciting document, but there are a few things here to point out. So the early part of this is kind of the aftermath of the Fort Sumter um, battle and the loss of so many federal forts throughout the South and the loss of federal property, which is something wearing down the early war effort, obviously. And there could be criticisms laid at 
allowing this to happen. I'm not sure how much the Union could have done to stop a lot of this, because a lot of these forts were, were in some cases manned by, by pro-Confederate military units and things. Um, but nevertheless, he, he talks about how really it was Confederate aggression that did it, which, of course, is truth. So we see the, you know, of course, we got the Confederate voices saying, oh, what's well, really Lincoln's such a tyrant, right? But it's hard to avoid that they fired the first shot. So you have to kind of build up a narrative of, of tyranny and freedom and all this nonsense. Um, but... <clears throat> But, you know, Lincoln says, I told them if you're, there's going to be a conflict, you're going to be the aggressor. And that's what really happened. So he's he's laying this out for Congress. Um, he does do the call for arms here. Um, still, I think, optimistic because I think he still has the limited uh, call for arms. Talked about here, the limited regiments. It's not going to be till after because I think it was like three months, uh, 75,000 soldiers, volunteers for three months. And then after the, the early defeats, Lincoln actually wants these people like pushed out and then replaced with like I think it's a three-year um, volunteers, which which would come later. And then finally conscription, of course. Um, so a lot of like the the cabinet reports are here too about the treasury and, and state and, and all that. But uh, uh, you know another long dissertation here on the illegitimacy of secession. And all that. So we've kind of seen this stuff before, but basically it comes down to something Lincoln said previously, which is no single state has the power to destroy the Constitution, and if one state can leave, that effectively does do that. And and that's a power that wasn't granted to the states in the Constitution. It wasn't the um, there wasn't this kind of suicide pact worked into it. Um, what else do we got here? Um, and then he kind of lays the groundwork too for like executive power, war powers. Um, and he says, oh, let there be some, unless there be some uneasiness in the minds of candid men as to what is to be the course of the government towards the southern states after the rebellion shall be suppressed, the executive deems it proper to say that will be its purpose then as ever to be guided by the Constitution and the laws. So you think about uh, Reconstruction in a way here. But I think he's also speaking to the, the whole question of what's going to happen to war powers in the aftermath of the conflict. So I'll leave it at that. It's it's a long document, but I can't I can't there's a couple kind of documents here I can't get too much into. One is like these long congressional reports by executives, whether it's Davis or Lincoln. It's not Lincoln's best writing, I think. Um and the and I guess some of like the battlefield memoirs written like fifty years later, it's like some old guy cashing in on his Civil War experience and writes some memoir. Those I don't dig too much either. Um, I guess battlefield, people are really interested in battlefields and the battles and, and all the minutia of the battle. Um, we dig those. There, there's some good moments in them and some have a different feel than others, but I'd just rather read Ambrose Bierce, I think, um, when it comes to that. Maybe that's, maybe, maybe I should read Ambrose Bierce alongside some of these. I don't know. Maybe I'll do it next. Maybe Ambrose Bierce is next. We'll see. That would be uh, in the same spirit, I suppose. All right, next, July 4th, uh, the journal of Kate Stone. Kate Stone was a, uh, a Southerner, a Southern woman uh, in Louisiana. And this is kind of her first July 4th reflecting as, a, as no longer a U.S. citizen, I suppose, in her mind anyways. The first 4th without a public 
holiday of uh, of whatever. And then the then she kind of spins this. This is all in her diary, but she kind of then starts talk, talking about our own kind of struggle for independence. It would be ill become us to be a nation celebrating a day of independence when we're fighting for our own very existence. So she says, we really can't celebrate yet, but she's looking forward to a similar kind of day for her her nation. So obviously a Confederate loyalist here. I'm really looking forward to see how some of these women's voices change as the war drags on and the body count rises and the, the, the months away from home become years for these men and sons husbands and sons and all that um but anyways um a little bit of of you already see evidence of of how this might play out in uh this document uh brother coley returned tonight he had gone to memphis with aunt sarah mr miller is stationed only seven hours from memphis and can run in quite frequently he is trying to get the current colonelcy of a regiment is stirring around in his usual style he says he spends two thousand a month and lives delightfully Hopes he'll make an equal division with Aunt Sarah. Brother Coley enjoyed the trip greatly. Um, so, yeah, no no trauma yet, but the number of men in her life that are off to war in some degree and how many of them are going to come back legless, armless, or at all, you know, is is something that's going to... Of course, it's going to be important on both sides, but particularly in the South because so much of the war effort depended on having, you know, women control the home front. You know, because, you know, you had women and slaves back home because the South had to mobilize so much more of its white male population to the front to to survive. Which it didn't. It didn't survive as an independent state. But um, to survive as long as it did, it had to, to mobilize much more of its free white population. It's free population, right? And that meant women were staying, running plantations, running farms managing slaves doing things they probably hadn't done much before um, all right next we got u.s grant from his memoirs i've talked about my feeling about these in this anthology that these mem like of course grant's memoirs are great and they're worthy of a whole series of episodes at some point but this is just a short little passage talking about uh getting the command of the 21st illinois volunteers and him crossing into missouri with this regiment of course this is going to lead to his first um the, the belmont battle right is it belmont um which was kind of an indecisive battle but it it's one of the first major battles out west and it did show grant's willingness to move on southern forces pretty aggressively but this is just uh talking about those experiences i suppose <clears throat> but um what else do we have here yeah that, that's enough um so next we have uh sally broke from richmond during the war um and so this is about some of the earliest battles which kind of come before the the battle of bull run uh rich mountain and carrick's ford now, my, I, I, going to the list of Civil War battles, um, it's here. Battle of Rich Mountain in West Virginia. Of course, West Virginia would would rejoin the Union, right? Um, remain loyal. Um, and this is ranked as a B. So a, a, a B class is a major engagement. Um, and this was a Union victory, right? Uh, this kind of gets overshadowed by the the first battle of bull run um 
and the Battle of Blackburn's Fort, both of which were Confederate victories in the aftermath of of this Battle of Rich Mountain. But of course, it's 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 a little bit farther away. But anyway, she's writing from Richmond. So this woman, Sally Broke, uh, is writing about this. This Richmond during the war, I think, was another is a memoir. It's another one of these memoirs, eighteen sixty seven, and she's talking about the you know the experience of the news of this. So that that's one thing we see a lot in in these documents is like. What's the news about these battles? You know, sometimes the news would be like, "Oh, we lost 500 men, but they lost 2,000." And in fact, when you look up the battle on Wikipedia, it's like they both lost about 300 men or something. It's like they get exaggerated and rumors spread about this. Um, but uh, this is kind of the first, in in a sense, the first major victor, the first major loss that the Confederate faced. And here's what she, a little bit of what she says about it. And I guess what, what I want to focus on here is like this. There's a bit of martyrdom in this this document. It's like, oh, we lost so much, but we had to like struggle on because we're in this struggle for independence. Quote, we had, however, very little time to devote to the luxury of lamentation over our fallen brave or to the sad misfortunes of our cause in West Virginia, Virginia. The sad strains of mournful music, the dull sounds of the muffled drum as borne by the procession of the lamented Garnet were only just lost in the busy hum of everyday life in Richmond. When our attention was called to the condition of things in the different portion of the state, then we had to move on. And this kind of sets up the context for the Battle of Bull Run. Um, one thing she talks about, too, is how women in Richmond were being mobilized to make uniforms and you know, get to work on making bandages and uniforms and being seamstresses. So there is this, again, a sign of this already war, total war kind of economy having to be inflicted with the fasting days, with the... The mass mobilization of of the male population, white male population, anyways, and of course some slaves were being forced to work in, for the armies too, right? As slaves. Um, but yeah, and then women being mobilized very very early on, so it wasn't like a later decision to to go all in. All right, the next uh, document is the Sullivan Ballou letter, which if you ever watch that Ken Burns documentary, they, they, he makes a big deal of this letter. It is kind of, it is really nice. It's a sweet little letter, um, partially because he, he dies as a result of the Battle of Bull Run. Um, he was wounded and he died like a week later of injuries on the 28th of, of July. So this was written about a week before the war and he died about, or a week before the battle and he died about a week after the battle. Um, after losing a leg. So he was of the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers. We'll actually hear another document from the 2nd Rhode Island Volunteers later on. And this is just a really nice, sentimental, well-written letter uh, of of someone willing to sacrifice himself for the nation, but yet feeling the loss of what it's going to mean to his family and feeling the, the, that he's going to lose his great love and and his boys and his relationship with them to serve this greater cause, which is the, the triumph of the government and American civilization. So it's, it's a good, like, what do they fight for kind of letter. I like that. But it also is a great letter of, you know, the so much of the Civil War army was literate. And so many of them did think about death and death, especially later in the war. Death was such a big part of it. Um, if you read, uh, who's it fought? Is it? Drew, what's her name? Uh, Republic of Mourning is the name of the book. She's, she's like the president of Harvard now. 
like Drew Foss, Drew Gilpin Foss, something like that. She wrote this great book though called The Republic of Suffering, and and she her source is a lot of these letters in which people would, as they're dying, because a lot of these people didn't die like shot to death on the battlefield. They got their leg shot off and they died slowly in the hospital, but they would write these letters to their loved ones and and send them off and messages to their their sons about what kind of men they should be really emotional stuff and we get this here but even though this is more of a love letter it, it, the boys aren't mentioned the sons are mentioned but it's much more his relationship with his wife it's a really sweet letter and if you haven't seen that ken burns documentary and never heard this letter um i think there's you can find clips of this on youtube or just read it here it's it's really nice um so then this this gets us into the battle of the first battle of bull run and we have a few different documents. I'll just kind of tell you what documents we have speaking to this battle. The first is Charles Minor Blackford. Um, this is another memoir. You know, it's not like these soldiers were like during the battle writing shit down. They, they fought their battle. They went on, did the rest of their military service. And then after they, they wrote down the details of what they remembered about the battle, sometimes years later, uh, this document... Um, well, these are actually letters, though. This is uh, letters from Lee's army. I don't know about this source. It's a little... I'm not sure. Oh, here it is. I remember now. A lawyer from Lynchburg, he was lieutenant in the 30th Virginia Volunteers. And he had he had fought an earlier battle. Um, anyway, he got sick, so he sat out the battle. So this is why he was able to write down some some letters from it. Uh, even though this is July 20th, which is a few days after the battle. But it's his reminiscence of, of, of the battle. So that's one source we have. Then we have uh, William Russ Howard Russell from My Diary North and South. And William Howard Russell was a Times of London journalist who has skin floating around this, this anthology here and there, selections from this book, which was kind of his memoir of his time in... The United States during the Civil War, and he was a witness to it as well. And he really focuses on the the route of Union soldiers because you know even though like the casualties were pretty balanced in this one, it's like the Union troops just were fleeing by the end of it, and it was kind of a disaster. Uh, Sherman writes about this later on too. So I think those are the two main sources we have uh, in this anthology on the battle, of, the first battle of Bull Run. And, yeah, I'm not going to say too much about them, I suppose. I don't remember anything too striking from them. Uh, the Spectators, which, of course, a lot of people who studied any even basic Civil War history have heard about. You got the Spectators, you got the, the, the fleeing of, 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 of Union troops at the end and the kind of chaos of that. Um, but, you know, these accounts are kind of hard to read, I think, because you do got that fog, kind of fog of war in the chaos of the battle. You know, when you read uh, after the fact historical counter, you see these maps with these bars and the bars move and stuff like that. It looks like it's all orderly. But, you know, I sometimes get the sense these these, these battles are just more chaotic and, and random in, in how they were fought. You know, did tactics really matter? It's like, no, you send it, you move the division forward and see what happens, right? And generals are kind of just watching at that point. I don't know. I guess they can get in the front lines and rally the troops or whatever, but it's... Once they're in the thick of it, I don't know how much they can really do. 
It's not a video game. Um, it may be a modern warfare. By World War II, you have a little bit more control about the mobility with communications and radios and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know in these days. When all you got to communicate with your troops is a bugle call or whatever. Anyway, I'm not, I don't what do I know? I'm not a military historian. Anyways, next we got Samuel J. English to his mother. This is another second Rhode Island volunteer. So this is another guy who was in the battle. So I guess this also counts as a, as a, as a pretty good primary source about the, the battlefield itself. Um, what I like about this one a little bit more than the other two is it does get, it is more from a soldier's grassroots perspective, someone who's there in the fighting. And he's a lot of blood. I mean, just the, the idea that this were, it, it wasn't PG-13, right? Rivers of blood, people's bodies being blown apart. And he writes about that kind of stuff. So it's a good reminder of that. Even early on in these comparatively, compared to later battles, relatively minor conflicts, right? Compared to what we'd see even just a year after this. But uh, even those pretty gruesome stuff i emerged from the woods he writes i saw a bombshell strike a man on the breast and literally tear him to pieces i passed a farmhouse where he had been which had been appropriated for a hospital and the groans of the wounded and dying were horrible i then descended the hill to the woods which had been occupied by the rebels at a place where the ellsworth zuvays had made their charge the bodies of the dead and dying were actually three and four deep while in the wood where the desperate struggle had taken place between the u.s marines and the louisiana zuvays the trees were splattered with blood and the ground strewn with dead bodies. Yeah. Nasty. Now, he must have been right in the thick of it, though, because if, if you go to the Wikipedia, right? So the Union lost 481 killed, 1,000 wounded, uh, and the Confederacy lost 387 killed and 1,582 wounded. Uh, the Union also lost 1,200 missing. Now, that a lot of that would have been in the the, fl the fleeing and maybe desertions and the captured and stuff like that. Confederates only had 13 missing um, or captured, I suppose. Um, so the Union lost a lot more, but a lot of these were missing, right? In terms of bullets in the in the body, it's you know the Confederacy actually lost more, it seems. But you know. Anyways, I get the sense this guy was right in the thick of it um, from the description we have. And of course, they must have because Sullivan Ballou dies uh, as a result of wounds. So, so this unit was in the fight. I don't know how many of these units were. It says here only 18,000 engaged of 35,000 in the, in the Union Army. So a little less than half. We're just sitting it out, more or less. All right, moving on. Uh, Emma Holmes' diary, news from of Manassas. Of course, Manassas is what the South called this battle. I won't use the Confederate language. Uh, I'll avoid it. Um, but this is this is written. This is a diary entry from July twenty-two, and we already see news about the the battle. Um, for instance, uh, she says. They had 80,000, and ours was only 35,000. The numbers for the Confederacy were right, close, pretty close, but the Union had about the same amount. So it was about like, again, back to the Wikipedia here, 35 to about 34. So she was right about the Confederates, but she exaggerated how much the Union brought to bear, 80,000. It's just, it's the fog of war, I suppose. And with the median over, you know, thousands of miles, it exacerbates those things. 
Um, I think there was something else in this document. No, I, I think it's not here. I think it's later. It's Mary Chestnut who, just a, like a week after the battle, is already talking about uh, General Jackson as Stonewall. So this name, I didn't know this, but the, the name Stonewall Jackson was like, I know it comes from this battle, um, but I didn't know it like became well known among the civilians that quickly after the battle. Anyways, uh, then we have Elizabeth Blair Lee to Samuel Phillips Lee, um, who was, she's writing to her husband who was on blockade duty. So he's in the Navy in Charleston. And she's from Philly and she's got news kind of from the other point of view, from, uh, from the, yeah, Emma Holmes was a southerner. So Elizabeth Blair Lee is more from a northern point of view, a northern woman's point of view, observing this and... Um, you know, it's not, there's not too much pathos in this document. Um, just that there were a lot of wounded and injured and, you know, and all that. But she is telling her husband about this loss. Uh, then we have, uh, Walt Whitman. This is from Species Days, which is, was published after in 1882. So these are kind of his reminiscence on the Civil War, I suppose. And he, uh, you know, he's, Rah Rah USA in, in during this war. We've already seen his poem about the mobilization in New York. And this there's a lot of there's a lot of emotion in this one as a as a defeat. Disappointment, panic in Washington, uh, the people beginning to scream at Lincoln, all those kinds of things. And he's writing this is all you know, twenty years later. Um, so he knows the outcome of the war. At this time so this really builds up some of the i think the drama of the moment so i, I kind of take this with a bit of a grain of salt i suppose i mean there might be there probably was some truth to it and certainly we see direct evidence that there was frustration with lincoln especially after a series of early defeats but um but take it take it or leave it it's whitman anyways um and then the final document i want to bring up today is uh kind of Abraham Lincoln's uh, memo, memo of July 1861 is after the aftermath of the Bull Run battle. And we don't see him in full retreat mode. We see him, what he felt inside in response to this is, is one thing. And what he said behind closed doors is another. And this is a, a public memo, or at least a memo within the government. And I think he makes some wise decisions here. I think, um, you know, it's, it's so easy to praise Lincoln when you look at the whole course of his life. But when, I mean, you also understand the pressure he was under and the frustration he felt and the conflict he was having with like Fremont and with his generals and and the series of defeats, um, you know, especially in that like winter of 61 where things were really looking bleak for him. But this document is pretty bold, I think. Um, for one, first first point, keep the blockade going. I, like the Anaconda plan is still primary in his mind. Like whatever happens on the battlefield is one thing, but if we keep that blockade going, it's going to win. It's going to work out. And of course, those are a lot of the early victories were the Sea Islands in South Carolina, New Orleans, right? The Mississippi, the Anaconda plan works. Um, so then the second point is troops should be drilling, becoming better disciplined, you know, really preparing for future battles. Um, three, firmly hold Baltimore. Like, don't let Baltimore go. Don't let Maryland go. But at the same time, don't antagonize them. They're another border state that 
you know, if they were to go in, that would have surrounded Washington with Confederate states. So, I mean, Maryland wasn't going to go. I don't think they would have allowed it, but still, let's not be distracted by pro-secessionists in Maryland. He uh, talked about General McClellan, who, of course, is going to be uplifted to to a stronger position in the military, in the army at this point. Um, this is interesting. Let the forces late before Manassas, except the three-month men, be reorganized as rapidly as possible. So you always got this idea of like filtering out the three-month forces. Um, and that's actually another point he makes, is just let them, like, let their time give up. See if they want to resign for three years or a longer period, two, three years, whatever it was. But, you know, get rid of them as quickly as Don't let them clog up the military, waste their time, because it's more like militia-type term services there. And bring in the new volunteer force as quickly as possible and train them. So there's these decisions are going to be really significant, I think, in, in the later victories of the Union Army. Right? And we're going to see more about that, especially in this winter spring of 61, 62 and this really building an army, right? Which is of course General McClellan's great achievement as I understand it. Um, so I guess that's it. So uh, that's uh, the documents we have here kind of surrounding the first uh, Battle of Bull Run. The next set of documents will take us through uh, November of 61. And so we got really here the Freeman pop, um, Wilson's Creek battle in Missouri, which is like the bull run of the war of the West. Right. Um, and the, and the Fremont issue. I've already talked about the Fremont stuff, um, with, uh, with the Lincoln series, but that was a long time ago. So, well, it just doesn't hurt to re revisit that. So that's, um, going to be the next episode and then the one episode after that will finish up 1861 and we'll finish up the first volume of this anthology so i'm hoping to do that in the next few days i've read through everything so um and i got notes on on the rest of this volume so anyways that's going to be it for now uh let me know what you think about any of this stuff uh any of these documents or issues or things that come up it's pretty straightforward i think this week um do, I, do we want to do more battlefield kind of stuff? I mean, outside of something that really grips me, I, I don't really want to talk about troop movements and things like that. Or, But maybe some people dig that. I don't know. The documents are there for you to read if you are one of those people. Uh, nothing wrong with it. So I guess that's it for now. I will uh, see you next time. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. 19 men so true. He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hanged him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew. His soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul.